welcome everyone. Uh, welcome everyone to London Dialogues. Uh, we are trying to create a series here, a platform for Indic voices in London, and uh, we welcome everyone who's joined so far. We will be there will be a few more people trickling in. So, but uh, Harsh Raji will start. So, what we have today with us are two investment experts, policy commentators, and now very proud co-author of much raved about book, A New Idea of India. So congratulations to both of you, Harsh and Alivia. Please pick the book up and make sure that covers. Uh, congratulations to both of you, Harsh and Raji, for uh, your publications you, and you the first writing. book. And uh, much talked about and getting a lot of praises and some criticism also, I believe. So uh, I'll, off the rack, I'll just uh, jump into these questions. So. I have been reading you, both of you, for quite some time. You have been writing essays and articles and publishing in uh, very repeated uh, publications. How, from there, this whole journey of putting that into a book came about? How two of you in NCIAD, MBA, and Columbia University, MBA, essentially into financial markets, come together to put a book on a new idea of India? So... Uh... Uh, we started Nilendra uh, uh, as as writers, as uh, columnists with different newspapers. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, I think we had published a few columns individually and then we started collaborating uh, after we had met, I think in 2009. And uh, uh, then coming from the financial uh, sector, coming from the investment world, I think it just flows naturally in the sense that if you're an investor in India, you're trying to make sense of the country from a macro perspective right. before you drill down to kind of micro themes, uh, industries and sectors. So mm-hmm. uh, both of us, I think, had that kind of a orientation and also obviously a passion for India, uh, kind of a, a love for the country and so on. Right. And uh, as we were writing, uh, then there was a large collection of columns which we initially had thought that you know could make for an interesting anthology. And as we started that project, then that kind of flowed into uh, something else. Uh, mm-hmm. It became much more expansive as the thing sort of came together and uh, it, it sort of evolved itself, I would say, into what is now, you know, the book in everyone's hands. And uh, it was, I would say, a very organic kind of process. We never, I don't think either of us thought 10, 11 years ago that, you know, we we're going to have a book in 10 years or something like that. Uh, you know, just flowed from like uh, our own thoughts into columns and uh, blog posts, and then from there into longer essays in some more sort of academicish type of journals, and then from there, mm-hmm. some of our mentors like Sanjeev Sanyal and Amish, right. they actually also encouraged us that you should consider writing a book now, and that's how we kind of uh, uh, got the uh, confidence and idea to actually move ahead on this path. Right, right. So what is this idea of India that two of you are putting across and why now there's a time to rethink what is India and what is the idea of India? Okay, so thank you once again, Nilendra, and uh, thank you to Gautam and Indic Academy UK for having me and Rajiv on to discuss a new idea of India book. Um, So I think any new idea, first of all, we say this is a new idea of India. We don't say this is the new idea of India. It's not the idea, yeah. This is our perspective, uh, you know, one of many ideas. But even even a new idea of India always has to build on something which already exists, right? So in that sense, it obviously builds on, 
as we say, the civilizational heritage of the book. So it's basically a new tweak on old material. It's a new way to package it. And the subtitle of the book is Individual Rights in a Civilizational State. So that, in a way, that subtitle of the book is a good way to start explaining what the new idea is. We basically are saying that we have to look at, uh, in, in social and political terms, citizens as individuals, as far as the government, the state, the law is concerned, and not as groups. Society might see them as groups, that's fine. So that's the idea on the social political side. And related to that idea is individual economic freedom, uh, which we cover in the second half of the book, which requires in turn good governance, good state capacity, individual economic freedoms, that is free markets, I, we think is the best way to create prosperity. However, with a couple of caveats, you do need redistribution. The idea is the redistribution such as good schools should happen through market incentives, like school choice, you do need good regulation. And you also need something to leverage the size of the country. So while we are all individuals, though, you know, and there are some downsides to be a very giant country in terms of governance inefficiencies, there are also a lot of upsides if you play it well. For example, you have collective bargaining power in terms of right. incentivizing multinationals to invest in manufacturing in India if they want this giant market. So there is some, some case for industrial and trade policies there. But broadly speaking, uh, our, uh, the general rule is to have more individual freedom, both socially and economically. But there are caveats on the civilizational side in the sense that you want to leverage the economic size of the country. And on the social size, you do not start poking holes into the very system, into the very right. culture and the ethos of civilization rather that makes these individual freedoms possible. Uh, right. So that, that kind of reflexivity uh, and struggling with that is what we try to convey in this book. <laughs> so, yeah, obviously the idea of any country is an evolving process. You are not going to have a static idea for any nation at any point of time. You bank your idea on a philosophy that it's a civilizational state here, right? So just uh, for the understanding of the audience, what do you mean when you call a country a civilizational state? And then I would also come and ask you about the counter question on that. So let's start with what is the civilizational state we talk about? In a nutshell, uh, I would say for a lot of people say or claim that India was created in 1947. Right. Before that, it was just a collection of communities. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there is a popular book called, uh, I think, attributing it to Nehru. The title is The Invention of India. Right. The discovery. Uh, so, no. So, uh, so I think Shashi Tharoor wrote that book called The Invention of India. And uh, in, in a way, it's like about Nehru's contribution and so on. Right. So, so, the idea being that, you know, Nehru sort of had created the country. He gave us democracy. And it all happened in 1947 and then 1950, the Republic was born and so on. Uh, but our thesis is that India was not created in 1947. India is a very ancient civilization, mm -hmm. uh, ancient culture, uh, or what we can say, Prachin Sanskriti or Sabbeta. Right. Uh, in uh, so so uh, the, the events of 1947 and 1950 were just one milestone in a very long history. Uh, and and uh, the Republic, which was formed in 1950, even that kind of acknowledged the civilizational roots of the land that is Bharat. Right. So, which is why we, we uh, one of the one of the kind of sections in the book is titled, you know, the idea of civilizational republic. Mm -hmm. So, in uh, we think that India is unique in the world, where 
a civilization also coincides with a kind of a geographic nation state in the way mm-hmm. that india is uh, uh and it's a civilizational republic that too is also unique because you know china is a civilizational state but it's not really a right. republic yep. right no, definitely not a democratic republic mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh and uh, there are hardly any other example you know people can maybe maybe you can say that israel is a, another kind of civilizational mm-hmm. republic japan probably is uh, but, can but, be uh, part of india is unique in the world Yeah, Sorry, which to, one? Oh, Japan, uh, I was saying, can probably be called a civilizational state in yeah, some sense. Yeah, Japan too. Japan, Israel, yeah, a few examples like that. Yeah. yeah. yeah so just, just, so, just to add to yeah, what Rajiv uh, said. So basically, uh, you know, one way to understand the word civilization is to think of the largest section of humanity, mm-hmm. uh, the largest coherent section of humanity, which is short of all of humanity itself. Right. So why why is that definition relevant? That definition is relevant because you know we often use the word the West, mm-hmm. the West as a civilizational construct, but the right. West refers to the United States, Canada, Western Europe, including the UK at the very minimum, if not also Eastern Europe. Yeah, and in, in that sense of term, West might also refer to New Zealand and Australia, which is not yeah, to exactly. West. So which is which has right. got nothing to do with the geographical West. Australia is right. also very much included in it. That's a very good point. So. therefore the west is a civilization construct but it is made of many nation states true however true. india and china are the only large examples the only relevant examples in which these large civilizations more or less coincide with one nation state right. and then as rajiv mentioned even within those two examples india is the only democratic republic true. so india is the true. only kind of civilizational republic that we have like france and the us are part of the west but they are mm-hmm. separate states right um even if europe becomes or western europe or the european union becomes kind of federal superstructure state in 5 10 years they have mm-hmm. a kind of centralized budget now that brexit has happened you know the west will still remain that european union plus us plus the smaller countries of canada australia and so on and so forth um right. so even then it will not be kind of one civilization although in a few decades from now who knows so in that sense india is very unique and we, we it's the reason why that is so important and so often missed is because uh, you know it is it is for example okay for western liberal commentators and just the name with the way i'm using it the western yeah yeah, yeah. western bolne se chalta hai but dharmic commentators it sounds sectarian to a lot of people it sounds narrow it sounds to some people yes. it might it might sound bigoted right so yeah, and yeah, so financial times correspondents might write the west in a completely mm-hmm. um, unself conscious mm-hmm. manner yeah right And, but like if a very honest manner, like yeah, not being discriminating anyone, but, or yeah, but there's no connotation, just a denotation, just a matter of fact. Yes, yeah. Uh, but if we write the India the civilization, then you know, uh, especially of late, the last few decades, all kind of, uh, you know, people start saying, "Oh my God, what is this person saying?" All the antenna go up. So, true, so it, there, there is an element of what we assume, what we don't assume, and what we are normalized to, what we are used to thinking of. and therefore mm-hmm. while it was while we say that the nehruvian construct of india is not civilization all the nehruvian himself saw india as a civilization and this was right. not a very kind of kind of strange idea in 1947 ironically with the with the so called founding fathers of the republic today it's only kind of reduced to a bjp position and my point mm-hmm. is that's good for the bjp sure politically yeah. but it's not good for india if there is no consensus on this True. True. So one criticism of the civilizational state topic you picked up directly that is a direct denial that there was no state yeah. per se before 1947. The other criticism generally comes when somebody talks about civilizational state or Indic state per se. 
uh, is that are we just holding on to our past and not trying to move ahead? What, what's the point of just harking on to that past, right? So how do you address that criticism? Is there's a positive contribution of being a civilizational state? Or if I could rephrase that, how does it matter to govern a nation? So, so I, I think on holding on to the past and stuff, uh, that I think allegation doesn't really hold water. Because if you are talking about, uh, you know, fundamentalism, let's talk about the fundamentals. You know, the yep. very opening chapter of our book, we uh, quote we quote from the Rig Veda, the mm-hmm. creation hymn as it is called, right. uh, the Nasadiya Sukta. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, if you read that hymn, uh, it is full of skepticism. Right. And it is essentially saying, you know, who knows whether even the gods may not know that where yeah. did this world come from, etc., etc. So it is, it is full of this, you know, it, as we write in the book, it would even gladden the hearts of even physicists and scientists true, that true. this is their uh, kind of a, you know, what, what is considered today as a religious scripture. Yeah. Right. It, it's, uh, it's full you know, of scientific a, skepticism, right? It ends with saying yeah, yeah, that so we probably yeah, never know. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. so, so if we, if we adopt that kind of a mindset, are we really becoming static? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, in fact, we are we are engendering a certain skepticism about the world, and at a high level, if we have that kind of a mindset, automatically one becomes oriented more towards what what again in the book we've described as having a slightly scientific orientation bent of mind, as opposed to a dogmatic bent, uh, where you where you are automatically more open-minded, right? You are saying that this can also happen, and maybe that can also happen. So let's see how it works. That's the kind of approach. So right. I don't see I don't necessarily see harking back to the past as something regressive in the mm-hmm. way it is portrayed by a section of commentators or analysts. Yeah, def- uh, yeah. So definitely, uh, pa- when you have a past, uh, what somebody would say harking back to the past yeah, so, can also be said as taking a strength from the past and building yeah, so, upon so it. That, that high-level philosophy is certain, certainly something. You know, I think I think you know it's uh, completely in sync with uh, scientific temperament. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what is or uh, you know uh, but then again that's high level philosophy. Uh, yep. You can always you can always find one or two people who are pulling in something absurd and then saying that you know this is what we should do because this is how it was done two thousand years ago right, or five hundred right. years ago. Right. But naturally, yeah. I mean that's that's where we have to apply our sort of skeptical hat, wear our skeptical mm-hmm. hat, and apply our common sense and see that you know maybe it worked then it doesn't work now. Yeah. Uh, and and take a slightly rational kind of approach like that. True, true. I'll I'll just so, add to I'll just yeah, add one correction to Nilendra what you mentioned earlier. So it's not necessarily that we had a unified state earlier. So the way the sentence that we mm-hmm. use in the book is India is an ancient civilization that is being converted into a young nation through right. the instrumentality of a democratic unified state. So you know mm-hmm. earlier we, culturally more importantly civilizationally we were one. Even if we were under different rajas, or for that yeah. matter, nawabs, even if we spoke different languages, but you know, you could go from Rajasthan north to Badrinath, or you could go to Dwarka, and you would feel that you are in the same uh, Dev Bhumi. Right. It's, right. In, right. So the, the the you did not need to have one state. The way China, for example, mm-hmm. at least Eastern China did more or yeah. less. They also had civil wars more or less for two thousand years. So the Chinese uh, civilization history is very much state-centered. Whereas Indian civilizational history is not at least a unified state center. 
right. there are different right. and there are differences the way it has kind of it's very path dependent now on to the point of why why it matters it matters because anybody any any person or individual or community or nation of civilization does not understand its history will make mistakes about the future like we have to understand True. where we are coming from to understand where we are going where, where are we are going, going. I mean, for example, if you discuss any controversial issue today, like you know, like the CA debates rocked us before the right. before the Delhi right. riots. How mm-hmm. do you take how do you take a kind of a you know, how do you see the wider arc of history if you do not understand where we are coming from, right? I mean, you can otherwise people will say let's contextualize based on these legal promises, which are also interpretations. You know, any legal promises and interpretation. Why not understand? For example, even pre forty seven, there's something called partition but, happened. But Harsh, if I can make a point there, okay. Uh, but we often see that the criticism comes from that perspective that why are we looking at? So when you put CA, a lot of people critical of it refuse to look even beyond nineteen nineties and forget the civilizational history. They say what's happening now, like five years, ten so, years. So my, my point is, my reply to that is very simple. First of all, people do not have to agree with you or me or Rajiv or Gautam, right? right? But yeah. the point is very simple. This, even if you want to think that you want to oppose the CA, the best way to oppose CA is to by by appealing to the best instincts of Indians, which is rooted in their civilization heritage. If you if you give them if you give them an a very legalistic argument uh, for a constitution that has been amended hundred times and that was under a dictatorial emergency for two years, and the words socialism and secularism were added to the constitution when the opposition politicians were in jail. it is mm-hmm. difficult to have the moral weight as opposed to if you appeal to their moral instincts grounded in thousands of years of their religion is a very minor part of it their broad right. civilizational world view actually even mm-hmm. if you want to oppose it that's the best way to oppose it uh, so you we need we yes. need that common lingua franca that understands which is why i'm again saying this civilizational heritage should be a bipartisan issue ideally it should not be uh, a single party issue because then within that framework we can disagree Right, right, right. So uh, earlier you mentioned India is a unique country in the world, being a civilizational republic, right? But there are other civilizational states. How the this identity of civilizational republic fits into the worldview in terms of uh, when you are uh, kind of doing business with other countries or interacting with other countries. So relation between two civilizational states or relation between civilizational state and nation state. Does that come into picture? Should I take that, Rajiv? Yeah, go for it. Okay, yeah, so um, so I think that's an excellent question of all kind of angles of foreign policy, economic policy, and trade. I'll just give you a small example, right? When when Narendra Modi uh, tries to counter China, putting a string of pearls around India, and he, for example, mm-hmm. goes to Mongolia. One of the common points he brings up in Mongolia is the Buddhist heritage of the two countries. Right. Right. So when he tries to attract tourists from Japan. you know there is a buddhist circuit being kind of made just analogous to the hindu chardham right. right so there there are even even with sri lanka there's also that one example harsh where uh, i think i think the up government reached out to south korea yes because yeah. uh, i think ayodhya connection in the 30s ago there was a princess from south korea who had uh, by way of marriage come to india yes uh, and and the up chief minister invited uh like a delegation from south korea to come to ayodhya so my point is the westphalian system of modern nation states which has extreme benefits in many ways is still a very much mm-hmm. a 17th century invention it first happened in europe then after 
colonization and decolonization it spread to the rest of the world right? right that that is the modern nation state system we live in and it has many benefits but people's emotional histories their sense and sentiments are by definition older than that right especially for right. old asian and european cultures where they remember things from 1000 2000 years ago even mm-hmm. a place like persia which remembers its pre islamic history Right. right so there, there, there even today india says it's it's a bit of hyperbole but india and iran have civilizational links yeah it might not mean right. much today but they mm-hmm. still say it right uh, so i i think it, it it is basically soft power in a way and no soft power is useful unless it is you know incorporated within a within a set of hard power but once the hard power is there the soft power is extra bonus you know like as people right. say in parts of india ki aap एक रुपया का नोट फेंकते हो तो आवाज नहीं होती उसके साथ अगर एक पैसा और फेंकते हो तो आवाज ज्यादा होती है सो लाइक एक रुपया एक रुपया और एक पैसा पैसा कम है रुपया से बट पैसे से आवाज होती है सो इट्स इट्स द एक्स्ट्रा लिंकेज व्हिच व्हिच इज ऑफन द डिफरेंस इन की इन की रिलेशनशिप्स राइट राइट सो दिस इज ऑल एट अ वेरी स्ट्रेटजिक लेवल राइट ऑन द गवर्नेंस लेवल एंड ऑल ऑन रिलेशन यू यू सीइंग समथिंग राजू No, and and I was saying, Nilendra, let me give one more example. Actually, something mm-hmm. I came across recently on how uh, you know, this civilizational uh, angle manifests itself. Sometimes mm-hmm. we don't even see it when it's in front of our eyes. Uh, so you know, if you look at the official Gazette notifications of India, there are yeah. two dates that are given. So the every Gazette notification has two dates. One is yeah. the Gregorian calendar date, right. and the other date that is given in India's official Gazette. is yeah. the uh, shaka calendar yeah so so right. that calendar actually is still followed in parts of mm-hmm. bali and java and indonesia right and uh, uh, it is it is in a way the national calendar of india in a sense it's it's it's, it's the mm-hmm. i mean we don't follow it in practice in indian life in common life in india because we all on the gregorian calendar system right we follow the months right. from january to december days Sunday through Monday, obviously, and so on. That's the Gregorian system. But there's an there's a ancient calendar which India had, which is still mm-hmm. the Gazette. Much in much use in a lot a lot part of India. So so just a couple of points. There, first of all, some of that calendar dates in Indian is still used for puja, padati perspective. Yeah. And secondly, you know how does civilization state matter? A very simple example is we allow Nepali citizens to work, live, and study in India. Right. We don't we don't allow it for Pakistanis to even visit much easily, and Bangladesh is a halfway case closer to Pakistan, but it's much more liberal in terms of travel because there mm-hmm. is less less uh, kind of tension between India and Bangladesh. Right. But only only Nepal gets all its citizens to live, yeah. work, and study in India. And now take a wild guess why that is the case. You know why we we might not like to say it and kind of acknowledge it openly. but there is a clear reason why that is a case and even bhutan is much smaller example but nepal is the best example of that yeah and 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 yeah. sri lanka even sri lanka which tried to be very kind of cozy with china the way nepal tried last few months ago mm-hmm. even sri lanka i must say that after the terror attacks that i think happened last year uh, uh, uh there is a there is a clear bipartisan consensus in sri lanka which kind of moved towards india and away from pakistan yeah. and to some extent even away from china so right. you know the point is these emotional connections Are or have even without Rajiv and me calling it a civilizational state, have yeah. always been there. That is why we treated Nepal very differently than any other country. Mm-hmm. And 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 you know when was when was the Gazette of India formalized? Right, the, this format of the Gazette of India it was formalized in 1955. Yeah, right. Uh, Jawaharlal Nehru was Prime Minister of India. 
Right. So, Nehru was the Prime Minister. Yeah. Why? Why? Why did they feel the need to include include this in the Gazette? Oh yeah. Well, but, when, on that matter, the cover that, of your book is yeah. is exactly. a civilizational. Yeah. Right. This is uh, from the fundamental rights section of the original Constitution. Right. Right. It's Ra- Ram, Lakshman, and Sita. Right. Right. So. Uh, it's it's not something that we dropped. Like the idea of civilizational state is not yeah. something we dropped immediately Absolutely after when happened in nation. It it's more of a recent phenomena when people yes. are questioning that idea. More of right. an 80s, 90s thing when it happened, and then there is a counter reaction now in the last few years. Right, right. So what I was saying is that this is all at a very strategic level on a governance level. What does it mean to be an individual, and how does it impact somebody in the 21st century living in India? Is that their nation has been a civilizational republic or uh, probably a civilizational federal structure, essentially, in the earlier times. So how does it affect them in a tactical way in their day-to-day life, What, how their rights are affected, or what responsibilities do they take when they're part of the civilizational state? You know, it's a fascinating question, and there are all kind of, kind of counterfactuals around that. But let us yeah. say for a moment that we were not united uh, as a, you know, this, in the civilization state. Multiple things could have happened. You know, mm-hmm. um, first of all, we would never have been able to leverage our size for economic investment. We could have been much more like Sub-Saharan Africa in that sense, you know, because only yeah. African, Africa signed a free trade union literally last year, I think, or this year, right. with Nigeria being the final person who signed it. Even today, it will take many years for it to properly fructify. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's on the economic side. On the political side, imagine if West Bengal was one country or Gujarat was one country, it would have been much easier for these so-called countries then to be dictatorships. You know, in a way, in a way, the div- diversity and democracy in India, uh, diversity including within the dharmic sphere, has actually made us much more amenable to democracy, including yeah. our own ancient heritage again from the Lichavi Republic, Vishali, so on and so forth. Yeah. So. so it, you know, the, when we are saying the world's largest economy, you know, will be the world's eco- economy, the largest number of people as global economic convergence happens. Mm-hmm. India and China were the largest economies for most of history. So right. then that, who do we credit? We credit our size. Who do we credit for our size? Contrary to popular jokes of Indians having a lot of kids, actually Indian, Chinese and European populations over 500 years as a rough proportion is the same. Yeah. Is that actually the Europeans rose first in the first few centuries and now Indians and Chinese have kind of risen and their overall proportion has remained the same. So why right. is India one entity so relatively easily? Mm-hmm. I think therefore the credit to that has to go to the civilizational heritage and therefore the life of an individual could be much better in India than say isolated Pakistan in 10 years from now or already is. Right. You know, it's yeah. much easier to do a tech startup in India given the large market. You, know, mm-hmm. you can't do a small startup for different different countries that easily. Right. Right. So there are many, many ways to think of it, Rajiv. I'm sure as many, you know, I don't know. It's an interesting question. It's a yeah, counterfactual. You, you have something to add, Rajiv. No, so I think it's just, uh, I think individuals should be allowed to view themselves in whatever way they please. Uh, <laughs> you know, if I really had to boil it down in very simple terms, I would, that's what I would say. Uh, and, and individuals should not be forced uh, by the state to self-identify as this or that, you know, for the purposes of the state, uh, every Indian is just an individual instead yep. of identifying as, let's say, member of a religious group or, you know, something else. Uh, so, uh, because I think that idea is actually in, uh, I would argue in perfect consonance with the kind of dharmic identity, the dharmic sort of ethos of India. Mm-hmm. 
So let me phrase this next question. It's going to be a challenge for me to put this question together. But uh, when we talk about civilizational state, we are talking about a broad common identity. But within that identity, when we are moving to individuals, right, we are taking a very classical liberal approach of every individual having very independent uh, rights to them, right? Uh, whereas when you talk about a kind of common identity, that's a more of a left liberal approach that individuals more than their own personal uh, freedom belongs to a group which should have rights, right? So uh, while we are talking about, bear with me, okay, I'm just trying to put this together. So while we're talking about a big identity here and talking everyone as a group, we're still going to a very classical approach of individual freedom. How you bring these two together, talking about identity yet individual freedom? So I think the very simple way to look at that is, you know, you need the big identity to protect the mm -hmm. small individual identities. Mm -hmm. um, the different, it's not left liberal because the left liberal group says within a country, they would look at different groups. Right. We, are we are talking at the meta country civilizational level. So, for mm. example, this is the kind of debate that would happen between, you know, as you said, classical liberal, like, you know, somebody, Robert Nozick on the libertarian side versus yep. John, John Rawls on the classical or more of a soft left liberal side. And, uh, you know, Robert, uh, so John Rawls would say everybody should have all these rights, but no identity as such, you know. And then right. Robert Nozick said, would say which state would kind of, you know, impose that order. And mm -hmm. then I, then people like me and Rajiv would jump and say, okay, if there is a state that imposes the order, what underlines that state? What keeps that yeah. state going? Right. So, there, okay, there is a state which hires police and which makes sure that classical freedoms are maintained for most of the people. Uh, then what is that that keeps the state together, the people together, that whole machinery running? Does it break down in some extreme cases? We actually write that in the book in a section called Kashmir, Pakistan and Karl Popper. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so there are, so the way, so it is, there is a lot of overlap with classical liberalism in the default setting, but right. it is the, it is in the exceptions where we disagree from the classical liberal or even more broadly, the liberal framework or terminology itself. I mean, right. except if you were, if, except if you were to include people like Karl Popper in a broader sense, mm -hmm. because we say we reserve the right to not be tol uh, tolerant towards the intolerant. You know, if, if, the, if the overall setting, the framework, the operating system that lets these individual freedoms kind of flourish and prosper, if that right. framework becomes under attack and not just under trivial attacks, this, is not, mm -hmm. this should not be an excuse. It should be used rarely, but like a real attack, for example, the way the war is happening in Kashmir, right? there's constant terrorist aversion from the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. There are real problems or, for example, the Maoist insurgency, which Manmohan Singh called the biggest internal security threat. Right? Sure. Real problems like that, you have to be at least ready, not happy, but at least mm -hmm. be ready to suspend individual freedoms, to defend individual freedoms. The way uh, that sounds Orwellian, but that's what Abraham, yeah, Lincoln, yeah, yeah. That's what Abraham Lincoln did to, uh, in terms of suspending habeas corpus for the yeah. U.S. to win the Civil War. And the U.S. then became the largest guarantor of individual freedoms in the coming century, you know, after desegregation right. and all that. So, so there are no easy choices, you know, in that sense. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But there, there, when there are clashes, it's not, the, to answer your question, it's not a classical liberal philosophy in that sense. There are exceptions right. where it break down and where we disagree with that worldview. Mm -hmm. So, will, will it be safe to say that uh, what's happened when you are looking at a broader civilizational identity, it is actually taking away the smaller fault lines which probably give people more freedom to move around in the larger sense of the world in within that construct right right raji you want to take this 
Rajiv, you are mute. You are on mute. You are on mute, Rajiv. Yeah, yeah. So again, the question, the question becomes, you know, what, uh, what, what are the fundamentals of the civilizational entity that you are talking about? Mm-hmm. So if we agree that the fundamentals are about freedom, right? About liberty, and that's the case that we have made mm-hmm. uh, in the book. That in a sense we are, we are I mean, in, in a, in a put it put slightly differently, the book is about reconciling individual right. rights with. in the ancient dharmic ethos uh, so if you agree that that is the case then i don't think there is mm-hmm. any problem because i don't think that's that that sort of mobility that you are mentioning individual yeah. mobility of freedom is in any way in conflict with uh, the ethos of india no no true i, I was making that point I, that's what i was saying no, that I, can... i understand nilendra yeah. i'll answer your question so basically uh, you were saying that in a way do we want harsh yeah exactly i'm uh, can you hear me i, I yeah, think yeah. there's a lag with rajiv yeah Okay, yeah, I, can, I can hear you guys. So I'm saying, uh, Nilendra, you're absolutely right that in a sense we actually write about melting pots and salad bowls in the book. Yeah, yeah. And so what we are, what we are saying is the government should see people as individual citizens. Societies should be free to see them as groups. Mm-hmm. And, and when these when you see people as groups, you have some kind of moral pressure on them not to be too mobile, not to be too flexible, not to cross certain boundaries. but our case is so long as the government sees them as individual citizens and if there is a revolt or if there is some churn or change and reform internally within the society after that extent we should not mm-hmm. stop it it does right, not necessarily right. mean that we should even necessarily go and do it mm-hmm. so so we are not necessarily arguing for an interventionist state we are saying yeah. the government should not at least slow it down right. because the, the natural process of you know free or markets education see also what is happening is we actually use um the character of a young woman to say to say that you know she's studied in one city and she's born in another city she's working in another city she's married to a person from yet another city and yeah. we are we are using real life modern examples from india because mm-hmm. what has happened is it's very easy for me to go from kolkata to mumbai to bangalore to delhi to hyderabad and pune um because you know there is a certain kind of national culture which has developed because of technology right. Right. because of movie and- because of digital because of uh, a general sense of who we are the same kind of uh, cultural references ipl is a classical example of you know uh, you you and i can kind of just meet and have yeah. small ban- banter over and kind of have a mock fight over the teams we support and right. that kind of common culture is a very you know recent creation in in, in a way uh, the na- earlier the common culture was at the elite level for example mm-hmm. the the ies and before that even the congress the indian national congress from 1885 was basically a collection of lawyers and uh, educated professionals at the very high level from calcutta bombay madras and delhi right, right. and uh, and what happened is only after gandhi ji did it become a mass movement and yeah. then the ics and then the ies you could have a bengali guy being posted in gujarat or vice versa and now mm-hmm. that thing has multiplied by orders of magnitude and with the private sector thrown in that it i don't i don't know when nilendra is from i actually i we spoken before the call went live i never asked you which state you from yeah. Perfectly fine to ask, but I definitely right. did not ask you your caste or your background mm-hmm. or you know it. It not that I was even curious. It did not even kind right. of cross my mind. Right? I, mean, right, I was much more right. interested in what you are doing in London right now. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that that change is something that even it's not gone through all of India yet. So let's not mm-hmm. overstate the case. It's something that's happening, but it is right. much more than thirty, forty years ago. And the thing that Raji, when I keep on saying in the book, is that the economic and social are related because they reinforce each other. so you have more right. economic freedom and prosperity you have more social churn and mobility which in turn creates scope for a larger national coherent market because if you talk to marketers they would say 
till 20 years ago they would say you you need very different state uh, advertising campaigns right you know? and right. that that might still be true for parts of south india or bengal but mm-hmm. maybe maybe from up to madhya pradesh to parts of maharashtra and gujarat i'm not i'm just making a, a hypothesis yeah, 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 yeah. it may not, maybe a similar campaign can now work like deepika padukone or virat kohli might be national icons now right, right. So, so in in that sense our common imagination is much more common than it used to be and therefore True. there there was and across not just caste or region but across gender like women are much more freer mm-hmm. we talk about like a don't ask don't tell incipient sexual revolution in india which in turn undermines kind of caste boundaries and regional boundaries so there there's an entire kind of churn that's happening in india which is you know in a very indian sort of way where you know the ghar ke parents bolte hai acha mujhe batana mat you know you know it's right. like let's not we don't talk too much about it but that yeah. churn is happening you know and i and i think no. that's very fascinating because indian um, most people who write about india are often not in india right uh, yeah. and indian indian academics are we are so in the indian environment that we kind of miss it but yeah. i think it's a fascinating social change accelerated 5 to 3 to 10 5 to 10 times faster compared to what happened in the west 100 years ago sure, sure. no what you're saying is very relatable for me because i have lived all over india and yeah. at no point when i moved to study somewhere or to work somewhere i even had a sense of uh, you know the idea that i'm going to a new place like yeah. in the sense i had when i moved to london or when i moved to malaysia to work the, I mean, that to sense be, never happened when i moved to bangalore to work so the way it works now is uh, you know you're living in calcutta then let's say you move to bangalore you know your bank remains the same your retail yeah. store is the same your telecom service provider is the same swiggy yeah. and amazon and flipkart is the same you know yeah you're just... the same kind of brands so in a in a kind of consumer sense you know right. you are the you feel like you're in the same place well was that true 30 40 years ago probably not right 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 so it's it's at that level also and i think another is that level is that we have a very underlying sense of being part of the same group yes. right yes, so yes. we probably yeah. not yeah. verbally state that we on a very surface level we might see bihar and bengal yeah. and uh, karnataka as different state and we see people as differently but at a underlying level yeah. we have a sense that it's the same place i'm just going to another city in my own yeah. country among my own people yeah. right so from there on a very uniting factor to will move to something which gets people in the knots uh you have a chapter called uh, saving secularism from secularists uh let's talk i'm not posing a question let's just talk about indian secularism here and what's happening there and what's wrong where we have gone wrong with the secularism in india no so uh, i think the single biggest problem with secularism as it is practiced in india i mean no, yeah. there's no problem with secularism per se but right. the problem with secularism as practiced in india and as propounded in india is that uh, is not you know in, in in law and in practice it is about treating different religions differently right uh, and and uh, you know is that really secularism it's it, it's it's actually a very orwellian construction yeah. of what so is, i have a very strong opinion on this subject right so yeah, i'm just so what, is properly, what is properly understood as secularism mm-hmm. uh you know i don't even think you know all the western sort of writers commentators who keep sort of hyperventilating often on the subject i don't even think they know what is actually happening are they aware of the kind of religion based discrimination that indian governments have been practicing for so many decades Right, and actually right. the chapter that you mentioned nilendra uh, in the book the third chapter 
the title is saving secularism from the secularists yeah and uh, we've tried to make a pretty pointed case that uh, it's time to change this and it's time mm-hmm. to move to a regime of individual rights where uh, indian citizens have uh, equality before the government they have the same laws and the government should not differentiate between citizens right right so where where i come from on the topic is uh, the very fundamental secularism come came into existence because in west you had uh, countries or states having a common joint on the top like religion and uh, governance were both managed by essentially the same set of people and thus the idea of secularism came in which essentially was never the case in india by introducing secularism that's my take on it that by introducing secularism you actually brought government into the religious space and then you asked government to somehow do monkey balancing between different group of people and thus you just sabotage secularism what was existing in essentially no see i see i i've heard that point often and i disagree <laughs> with that point there's okay. people who say that basically secularism is a christian or a post christian idea yes of course it kind of the way the word the practice came by separating religion and state This, in european yeah. countries especially after the catholic protestant civil wars across the continent right so that's mm-hmm. the, that's the, that's the genesis of secularism but the reason why india still needs some separation of mm-hmm. the right word in hindi is panth nirpeksh not dharm nirpeksh right it's panth nirpeksh and i think even yogi adityanath makes that point and many bjp politicians have made the point you cannot be dharm nirpeksh you cannot be value neutral Yeah. You, you you have to be path neutral there's a difference and the reason i'm right. saying is it, the abrahamic religions have anyways been in india for at least 1000 years if not more right i mean right. almost 15 centuries if you include mm-hmm. some early christians and muslims almost 2000 years um right. depending on what date you cut off so once you have that set up in india you need a apparatus so th- that all religions are kept aside as far as the government is concerned and then right. people say well even assume for a moment that no abrahamic religions you know king harsha used to give grants to buddhists and shaivites and vaishnavites in prayag or whatever well the point is though even the largest indian states are not as large as the state today we have mm-hmm. and uh, they were not as intrusive and powerful and they did not have as much tax revenue so right. even if you, if you ignore abrahamic religions for a moment proselytizing to abrahamic religions of islam and christianity uh and if you do not have a separation of religion and state so let's go by the the meaning of the term and not the term because the term has become toxic even rajiv right. and i while we talk about you know saving secularism secularism we are not very enthusiastic about the term itself because the term has become toxic so right. let's talk about saving just separating religion and state so let us right. say even if you did not have abrahamic religions and there was a hindu government um would you want them to control temples even if there was no muslims and christians yes or no no if no then that is separation of religion and state so right. then that is secularism genuine secularism and if so yes no. and if yes then uh, the question is uh would we end up uh, favoring one kind of temple sect sampraday over the other you know so so there are there are deep issues but you are right in the sense to the point that by having this perverted definition of secularism we ended up destroying it But yeah so that's the point i was trying to make that by putting the secularism in this sense there we have actually yeah. brought government into the setup yeah, where yeah. they But were the, i was just disagreeing with the part of the christian origin because even the united right. states has a separation of religion and church but mm-hmm. it does not do uh, what india does right right so in fact in many hindu temples are much better run in new jersey than they are in new delhi true like you, you can go to hindu temples in america they're beautiful they're gorgeous 
Mm-hmm. Right, they're absolutely well maintained, no problems at all, and I'm sure in the UK as well. Yeah, uh, but de- but definitely in the US, like I'm, I've been astonished. Of course, Indian Americans are very rich community and all of that, but I was mm-hmm. blown away by the beauty of the temples, how clean they were, how well managed they were. Right, and so there is something to be said about just separating these two realms, even if it is a kind of post-Christian idea, because anyways, Abrahamic thought process and religions are in India as well now for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but what is very important is you are secular or you are minority appeasement. Bhi kar rahe ho. So it's like, right. it's, like, it's like we are being beaten for opposing this form of secularism and we are still paying for these minority religions. Like it's, a, it's the worst of both worlds. Like you are paying true, the jazia and, and you are being called a bigot. Right. It's right. the worst so of both worlds. It is really yeah, a perversion and it is unfortunate that this has been, mm-hmm. been allowed to continue for so many decades. And that's why that that word has become very toxic today actually true true right so from there we'll now try to move towards wrapping this discussion up and i want to touch upon the last chapter of your book which is decolonizing the indian state so first thing why do you think that we are still colonized and in what sense do you use that word uh so well uh if you look at the structure of so the state obviously you know there's the executive there's the legislature there is the bureaucracy there's the judiciary so broadly mm-hmm. speaking if you say there are, there are four organs like that mm-hmm. uh, let's leave aside the intelligence agencies army and so on for now right but, but just looking at uh, uh, you know uh, the focus on that last chapter is in the is on the bureaucracy and judiciary so our cases that the bureaucracy in its current form today in india is in need of dire reform primarily because the complexity of the economy has increased manifold over the last 70 years right but the selection procedures the training and sort of appointment procedures have not really been that way mm-hmm. uh, so we moved from like a completely closed autarkic kind of economy to a uh, quite a, a quite an open economy uh, moving more and more towards like a liberal market model and mm-hmm. uh, that requires special uh, special specialty kind of training special skills uh, and so on uh, for the bureaucrats who will staff those regulatory bodies uh, so for example can you in a bureaucratic reshuffle have someone who's let's say a steel secretary overnight mm-hmm. become a finance secretary and then yeah. the human resource development secretary or the education secretary now uh, then becomes the commerce secretary in charge of all the trade related issues in India, negotiating sure. with different countries and managing very complex uh, policy matters. So, mm-hmm. so that, but that is how these uh, 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 members of the bureaucracy yeah. move around at the senior level. Uh, and it's based on things like seniority. Uh, there is a very large in kind compensation element. There is not a very large cash compensation element at the higher levels. Right. So if you're a senior bureaucrat, you get a nice bungalow, you get probably some cars and other amenities, mm-hmm. household amenities and personal staff and those kind of things. Uh, right. But but your uh, kind of cash component of your compensation is much lower. So mm-hmm. the case that we are making is uh, we should have a higher cash compensation for the top level of the bureaucracy. And at the same time, the lower level of the bureaucracy is overpaid. If you compare the kind of tasks that the low-level bureaucracy does to what a private sector job would pay, uh, mm-hmm. it is actually a very well-paying job for the kind of role that it is. Which is why right. you see a scramble in India whenever you know, there is some recruiting going on for entry-level posts in government. 
then even even advanced degree holders are applying for these jobs and then the media headlines come that there's so much joblessness that even a phd guy is wanting to become a clerk somewhere right uh, but right. but the reason that happens is the 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 pensions the benefits the guaranteed employment system uh in bureaucracy uh makes these jobs actually very lucrative you don't have to do much you get paid very well especially if you're living in uh you know small town india and like the hinterland uh where the mm-hmm. cost of living is really not that much compared to larger cities uh so right. because of all these reasons there is a need for dire dire need for administrative reform and mm-hmm. uh, we haven't done too much of that if you look at over the last 60 70 years there have been so many committees that have looked at this and said you know this needs to change this needs to change but who's changing it uh i think probably the modi government has made had taken some initial steps into lateral entry uh yeah. in an organized fashion and now we have some people coming in but uh, yeah. you know for all these years not much has really changed actually on that front and we are continuing right. with the inherited sort of steel frame which has now become a steel cage mm-hmm. uh, uh and uh, that is why we say that the state needs to be decolonized and then that's right. the bureaucracy so if we talk about the judiciary now mm-hmm. uh, you know one of the great things that has happened in the last 25 years is kind of the decline i would not say the end but the decline of dynastic politics in right. the legislature and executive side yeah so so you know uh, till 1997 there was pretty much one family which had run the country right there was hardly anyone else who had been prime minister who had controlled the levers of power in delhi uh, right. but we've seen that change in the last 20 years yeah uh, but if you look at the judiciary and if you look at the appointments process again in the higher echelons of the judiciary the appointments process is not very transparent uh, mm-hmm. there are there, there are hints of nepotism there uh, where you know if you connect the dots on who knows who and who's related to who you quickly find that uh, you know someone's nephew son daughter not too many daughters and nieces unfortunately because it's highly right. male dominated even till date mm-hmm. uh, but there are all these kind of relationships actually there are intermarriages and it's like a cabal onto itself to be very honest mm-hmm. and uh, that appointment process in the judiciary uh, needs to be overhauled uh the yeah. narendra modi government had tried to overhaul it but then it was shot down uh by the judiciary itself which said that it, the, you know the overhaul is against the basic structure of the constitution right the, yeah <laughs> so, so that, know, that's the of part of self invented document yeah, yeah mm-hmm. so so both those aspects actually uh because of the appointments and incentives at play our thesis is that uh, india has a highly kind of uh still a pretty colonial sort of uh, approach and that approach needs to be reformed and made uh, more democratic right so that's the point on uh, more of a administrative decolonization uh harsh do you have anything to add on the that uh, probably on ideological no, decolonization no, I, i do but i think gautam wanted to say something first Yeah, actually yeah this uh, very important point i wanted to uh, ask a question on and i think mm-hmm. rajiv you just touched upon it the administrative reforms so whichever area i look uh, at in uh, you know when i look at india whether it's digital payments it's uh, startup scene agri reforms uh, recently there's so many areas uh, to be very happy about but there are couple of areas uh, and one of those um, is administrative reforms the size of the government actually hasn't really reduced that's the area of despair if i if you look at it from my perspective 
So I think I'll stick on it. You brought it. I would, I would just say, actually, Harsh, you want to talk about the government sizing and resizing and all that? Okay, I'll that's, just very quickly answer. I'll, I'll very quickly answer uh, first Nilendra's uh, point. Uh, I'll just briefly first add to what Rajiv basically said. It's not only very colonial the state; it's also very centralized. So right. what has happened within the Indian government is even though a lot of power has been devolved to state governments, and we can discuss that there have been some setbacks as well. But broadly, it has been devolved. It has not gone down to the local level. And even where it has occasionally gone to the local urban level, very very occasionally, not compared to anywhere else in the world, in any democratic part of the world, it has absolutely not gone to the local rural level. And what I mean by that is the very term of the IAS officer in local parlance remains collector. You know, collector is from the pre from the colonial time of the person who used to collect agricultural taxes. Now we don't have agricultural taxes. There are no taxes in the rural areas. That's part of the problem because then. anything that comes from the top they see is as manna from heaven and therefore mm-hmm. there's a lot of corruption not a lot of accountability there are no local taxes right. and hence there's no local buy in uh, because i've worked in rural areas the largest i think the biggest problem is the local panchayats don't have any local taxes worth talking about and so mm-hmm. there is no real accountability to say ki maine tax diya wo sarpanch kya kar raha hai the idea is some money has come from the top and even if the sarpanch has kept half i am getting the rest of the world is getting half that is better than nothing right so the, it is yeah. in, in political economy public choice it is called the fly paper effect but even if some stuff is flying the rest is sticking and that's fine anyway so coming back to the broader point first of all of uh, decolonizing our thinking i think one larger point which kind of steps back from this chapter is we say stop using left wing and right wing mm-hmm. you know these are these are terms come from the french revolution the french parliament and even the western american model more generally in india does right. not apply you know all mm-hmm. the debates of gay rights abortion and all that are either not so important in india or actually the so called right wing has done slightly more than the so called left wing i'm not saying sure. the so called right wing has done absolutely amazing depending yeah. on one's point of view but it has these are these things don't apply in india if there is a sunni extremist in india who is against women's rights in many ways i'm just giving an example i'm not picking yeah. any community but let's say you know statistically he does not like the bjp and he's mm-hmm. a, he always votes against the bjp so is he right wing or is he left wing you know it it, it does yeah. not make any sense because his world view is we would call it social conservative uh, maybe right. to the extreme but if he's always opposing the right wing party he's not right wing right so these terms don't matter that much in india india is as you said a civilizational state until the moment there is no consensus on that point uh the civilizational party which right now is the bjp that is the vehicle of that uh you know is called the right wing party that's a bit like saying uh you know uh, indian civil indian civilization is right wing to be indian civilization is uh, to be a right winger a civilizationist you know and that is why there are so such imp- very frustrating but also very impressive debates in the so called indian right wing because yeah. they are not debates between the right wing they are debates within the indian civilization Because right. on the on so, the other side, as you rightly mentioned in the beginning, Nilendra, there are people who are denying that it's a civilization yeah. at all. So with with that audience discussing what should happen going forward is almost futile, right? And vice right. versa for them, if they see rightly or wrongly, yeah. I think wrongly, the word civilization as a mortal threat. Now on the point of what Rajiv mentioned about the state, we want the Indian state to be uh, not existent in small and most areas. but where it exists it needs to be much bigger stronger and more effective what i mean by that is very simple as rajiv mentioned hinted about the bureaucracy and the judiciary i'll add a very simple point policing again there are there are not enough police officers and definitely not enough people arrested incarcerated 
in right. indian prisons as a percentage of the population of per 1000 india is much below the median uh, some mm-hmm. place like america is much higher than the median i'm not saying more is better but right. clearly in india there is a, especially in rural areas or smaller towns there is a sense of reliance on self policing now right. broadly in 19 out of 100 cases it actually works very well mm-hmm. indians are remarkably peaceful if you walk through a brazilian favela or slum whatever they call it uh, i mean i've been told by my friends a lot of rich people get mugged you can be a very rich mumbaiker and walk through dharavi you'll be fine in most cases yeah. you know yeah. india is a remarkable place in many ways but what happens especially where there are not many eyes on the road it's not safe enough many uh, local norms often patriarchal norms get forced on people women or anybody who dissents in the name of a khap panchayat etc there is not enough policing state capacity uh, right. so for example the government should focus on that as opposed to running hotels right mm-hmm. so the broad so when people say big government small government that's not the question uh, in many ways number of government employees per lakh in india is actually very little uh, so we need much more uh, expenditure on healthcare education policing even though healthcare and education can be done with the incentives of a private sector but the government mm-hmm. has to subsidize it for the poor but what right. we don't need are for example you know massive uh, rajiv and i the very first column we wrote together besides one small financial column was why does india need so many ministries uh, and we actually explored that in the book and part of the reason is lack of internal democracy in indian parties but a large part is it just make is just make work for uh, ministers to be accommodated you know you have so many right. ministries approaching the same area and there is deadlock now it might be less of a problem in this government because the pm I mean, was very there is, powerful no because then there is no chemical and fertilizer minister in the uk for example right there is the, there is a business secretary right. there is a chancellor of the exchequer but there is no yeah. for example steel minister or steel yeah. secretary or whatever right right i mean these are decontrolled industries the government really doesn't really have a role directly at least Right. Uh, I mean, there have been such nationalisation in the last five years. You see, these ministries are to control the PSUs, those which remain from those in those sectors, like sale or whatever RCF, you know, those fertiliser factories, and they they have basically become rent-seeking. Only recently, I just learnt, Rajiv, that Jindal Steel if, or JSW, if I'm not wrong, just recently got the right to build steel for Indian railways. Uh, basically, sale for so all these decades right. after liberalisation was. was basically had a monopoly on making yeah. uh, basically steel uh, rails for indian railways and they were uh, not they were not satisfying the requirement so they were not, they were not able to supply the uh, required number of rails even if even if they were even if they were competition okay, was okay, okay, okay. Uh, steel is a very interesting what is the proper, so but i think we are going right? an, in a rabbit hole here <laughs> now we will keep going that path so no, sorry yes, yes. So this, i just want to add one thing Nilendra, mm-hmm. that's okay with you. I mean, mm-hmm. to summarize, I would just say, you know, we have to be very conscious of what is the proper role of government. Right. So right. True. Why should and the Indian government become like a conglomerate, right? Mm-hmm. Like why are we why are we allowing the government to become like Tata Group, where you know one company, the Tata Group, is selling to another company, the Tata Group. <laughs> true. True. Right. So uh, we have if almost. Can, if you allow me, here. one question. Yeah, then, uh, yeah. I think uh, this. there were two questions uh, i wanted to ask one was about the size of the government which you answered mm-hmm. um, again just a variation of uh, that question is that the government is big in areas where it should be small and i think uh, harsh you touched upon it you know why should we be uh, why should uh, government be running hotels or running airlines or selling you know even bsnl for uh, 
from my perspective is not required you should, government should not be in business to consumer services it's very bad at doing consumer uh, businesses running consumer businesses and it's not required to be in those businesses where it is supposed to be big like policing you touched upon it and forget about just rural areas you know if you look at the recent riots in bangalore or delhi the police capacity is just not there to be able to respond to you know somebody uh, a large crowd comes in and burns down the police station which modern country would tolerate it and we don't right. have the capacity to handle that so policing needs to be enhanced and maybe we should cut down on agriculture procurement why should we have so many collectors and why should a collector of a district be involved in procuring grains that's just not i think that's where it should so i i just wanted your thoughts on those uh, okay. topics no i i think the point of policing and especially in the context of recent uh, riots or the disturbance in bangalore is an excellent point you know i was reading about these terrible tragic terror attacks in europe in the last few weeks and you would read the interesting thing is you know at least as an indian i noticed was somebody press some button for a police emergency and the, and the police was there in like 2 minutes and i was like even in hindi films in scenes they don't come in 2 minutes right and my point is imagine how many lives were saved because the police came relatively quickly and gunned down these uh, dastardly terrorists and imagine we had scenes of in delhi riots that one person with a gun out that that became a headline photo in in bangalore there were there were people who had actually burned down a police station then they thought that they were doing a favor by actually protecting a temple or something right so these are classic yeah. case of under capacity i fully agree with you and then on the last point procurement i mean rajiv and we i have we have written about agricultural reforms that just happened this year massive there are still still much more to do uh, but yes i think in the short term i think the government has actually increased procurement to kind of offset the political risk of the reform in the short term uh so you know it, that's the economy is never economy is always political economy right so now harshan rajiv will try to wrap up before we do that i want to ask you start uh, from the people who are planning to read this book or the readers what are the key takeaways from this book that they can expect to get so your summary or your so i would not give a summary i would simply say if you want to really understand as an indian mm-hmm. or a non indian as a resident indian or a non resident you know where india is coming from and it is going uh, you know mm-hmm. may i dare say slightly arrogantly on behalf of myself and rajiv that it's a very comprehensive book you will definitely disagree with many parts that's fine right. but we mm-hmm. have tried to be very rigorous in our research and have tried to kind of make sure that we footnote the last anything possibly controversial double checked it we've given it mm-hmm. a lot of thought so i and really there is really no such book on in the market so to speak which covers a wide uh, range of areas like this one so we've tried to present really? not the, not a manifesto or agenda but a way to think of all these related areas rajiv mm-hmm. rajiv anything you want to add to that no and if i miss it so i think harsh is uh, absolutely right i think you know this book is like a crash course on the history and future of india uh, if i miss it so uh so you know anyone who has a passing interest in india who's interested or even learning deeply about the future of the country mm-hmm. uh, or rather the past of the country and where the country is headed in the future if you want to learn, learn about that get idea how to think about that i think the book offers all of that in a variety of domains uh so i i think you know uh, any any india watcher indophile would find this very interesting i think 
Right. So thank you both of you to join us. And uh, it was really wonderful talking to both of you. And uh, I look forward to reading more from you guys. And uh, good luck. Good luck for your book. That's all. Thank uh, you. Thanks, Gautam, for joining in. And uh, thank, you again, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Gautam, for inviting us again. There are questions you may drop in and we'll take on a live chat or somewhere further again. We'll get you responses from these guys if there is anything you want to. Follow them on uh, Twitter, probably, if you want to ask them directly any questions. So thank you, everyone. Thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks.